1, uh, open up to John chapter 1. So I'll just break the news to you now. You maybe heard from second or from first service, we got 50 points this morning, so we got to get going. I'm serious. Uh, John chapter 1, verse 14. Um, last week, we covered verse 14, but we did not finish. Uh, we're going to finish the last five words of John uh, chapter 1, verse 14, full of grace and truth. Uh, let's just read John 1, verse 14 together and pray and get into the word of God. John 1, 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you that it is full of grace and full of truth. Lord, we look to you as our shepherd to speak to us, to nourish us and lead us, to refresh us, to correct us. And Holy Spirit, would you exalt Jesus in our hearts and in our minds as we see that he is full of grace and he is full of truth. We love you, Lord. We're expectant to hear from you. It's in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, so... Generally speaking, there are like grace people and truth people, right? Uh, Grace people, generally speaking, maybe received grace themselves, and they find it a little easier to extend grace to others. Uh, Think of the prodigal son, right? This guy, he blew it. He received radical grace. And so it's very likely people like him are able to receive and extend grace. That may be you. That may be your testimony, your life experience. Uh, And then there's the truth people, right? And generally speaking, the truth people kind of have their act together, so to speak. And and so they're all about truth. And and maybe they have a harder time extending grace to others. Think of the older brother of the prodigal son. Uh, Generally speaking, the grace people know and love all that the Bible has to say about God's love and his mercy. Uh, And generally speaking, the truth people like the verses where it talks about God's holiness and his righteousness. And they have lots of books and they study doctrine and theology. And there has only been one person to get both of these things right. And that person is Jesus, full of grace and truth. You know, grace people can make Jesus in their own image, and they love all these aspects of Jesus, but then truth people come along like, no, you don't understand, Jesus was this, this, and this. And it's important for us to know that grace and truth is not like a 50-50 thing. It's not like Jesus is 50% grace and 50% truth, and and they're balanced. This isn't an issue of balance. Like, when you think of balance, you think of like a seesaw, right, or a teeter-totter. And and to be balanced, each side has to compromise 50% for that balance. That's not the way Jesus is. He is full of grace and he is full of truth. He is overflowing with grace and mercy and he is overflowing with truth. The way we are going to look at Jesus together this morning is uh, we are literally going to look at about 50 ways 
he's full of grace and truth. We're, um, I've limited myself to the Gospels. I wanted to do the whole Bible, and then I was like, that's too much. And I wanted to do the whole New Testament. I was like, that's too much. So we're only going to skim the, the Gospels. And we're going to look at 25 ways he's full of grace. And we're going to look at 25 ways he is full of truth. Now, this is a unique kind of sermon. Um, this is, we're essentially going to let scripture wash over us. And we got to let the fullness, the cumulative effect of the grace of Jesus just wash over and minister to us. And then the cumulative effect of the truth of Jesus. And as a picture, I want you to think of it like this. Imagine you were to walk into a great castle and there's this banqueting hall, right? And there's this table full of food. It's like 50 feet long, 100 feet long. And there's all every cut of meat and cheese and every kind of drink and bread and fruit and even vegetables for the vegetable people. And it's just like all just like, it's just the smells. And what we are going to do right now is do like a taste tour, okay? We're going to just walk and just be disciplined and just take one little bite of that fresh piece of sourdough. And then we're just going to take one grape and then we're just, we're just going to like just take like a little tasting, right? Um, by the end, we will be full. We are going to be like stuffed full because that is the effect we, we are to see. Jesus is full of grace and truth. He's overflowing with grace and truth. And so I don't recommend taking notes um, or even following along. We can provide the notes for you so you have the references, but uh, just let the effects of who Jesus is, the glory of Jesus, like wash over your soul. So first, we're gonna look at Jesus who is full of grace. Uh, we will begin in Matthew chapter one, where the New Testament begins. And, and the first place we see his grace overflowing is in his genealogy, in his bloodline. You remember there's Abraham there who was chosen by grace, not because he did anything good. He was just simply chosen. The people of Israel were chosen by grace. And then David is in there, the youngest of seven sons who was overlooked by people, but was chosen by God by grace. This genealogy is full of adulterers and murderers, yet God graciously uses these kinds of people to bring about Jesus. And I want to ask you, is your past a mess? Is your family history a mess? Take heart, you are exactly the kind of person God loves to extend his grace to. We see the grace of Jesus overflowing in his very name. Look at this verse in, uh, these verses in Matthew chapter one. This is angel speaking to uh, Mary or to Joseph about Mary. It says, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. That, that name Jesus means Yahweh saves. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. In the very name of Jesus, we see the grace of God overflowing to us. We see the grace of Jesus as he defeats Satan's temptations. If you remember Adam and Eve, the very first human beings, they gave into temptation. They brought sin and death into the created world. But Jesus, the new Adam, resisted temptation perfectly. And because he resisted temptation, he had a sinless, spotless life, which would validate him as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. 
We see his grace overflowing in his miracles. Look at, uh, this is just one of so many places we could read. Matthew chapter four. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought him all the sick those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. All throughout his ministry, Jesus has compassion on those who are sick or demon-possessed. He was willing to touch lepers and provide food. He even kept a wedding from falling apart by providing more wine. He was so gracious in his miracles. We see his grace overflowing to his disciples. Remember, he didn't look around and choose the 12 most educated, gifted, you know, expertise like A-level leader kind of guys. Says he chose ordinary, unschooled men. And for three years, he extended grace upon grace to these guys as they were selfish and proud and confused and sleepy. And he even uses these guys as the foundation stones of his church. We are the same kinds of people that Jesus loves to use and extend grace towards as we are his disciples. We see his grace overflowing as he pursues sinners. Look at Luke chapter five. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Are you in sin right now? Jesus pursues you in love and says, come, follow me. We see his grace overflowing in his compassion to the spiritually neglected. Look at Matthew chapter nine, verse 36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. We see his grace overflowing as he's gentle to the spiritually weak. Get Matthew chapter 12, verse 20. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. Uh, Have you ever felt like you are just barely hanging on spiritually? just barely standing. Like that flame that was burning for Jesus is like just a wick that's just like smoke and there's just a tiny bit of life and heat left. Jesus does not despise us in our weakness. He sustains us. He's compassionate. He upholds us. We see his grace overflowing as he forgives our spiritual debt and our sin. Uh, Matthew 18, this is the story of the servant who was forgiven an incalculable debt. If you work it out to the numbers about what they are, were then and were today, it's over $10 billion. And he just 
forgave that spiritual debt. In Mark chapter 2, it's the story of the paralytic who, he, whose friends brought, uh, brought him to Jesus so that he would be healed. And they creatively like, find a way. They climb on a roof and they lower him down. And they're just hoping for healing. And Jesus looks at the man and says, son, your sins are forgiven. See, Jesus doesn't just offer physical healing. He forgives our spiritual debt and our sin. And not only does he forgive our sin, his grace overflows as he breaks the power of sin. Look at John chapter 8, verse 34 and 36. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. He frees us from the power in bondage of sin. It's no longer our master. We are no longer slaves. We have been set free. Jesus, his grace overflows as he gives us his righteousness. He doesn't just forgive our debt. He doesn't just break the power of sin. He gives us his righteousness. There's so many places we could go. And Luke 18 is the story of the tax collector and the Pharisee. And the Pharisee was one who trusted in his righteousness. And he's thanking God that I'm not like the sinners. And I even tithe on my spices. And he was pretty proud of his own righteousness. And then the tax collector falls on his knees and doesn't even look up to heaven and says, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, that tax collector went away justified. That word justified means to be counted righteous. That tax collector wasn't righteous because of his own righteousness. It was credited to him. God looks on sinners who trust in him for mercy and says, you are justified. I give you my righteousness. That story in Matthew 20 is where all the workers get hired at different times in the day. And then at the end of the day, the one who was hired and worked for like an hour gets paid the same as the beginning. And the point is, we are receiving mercy from God. We don't earn our righteousness. And then Luke 15, the story of the prodigal son, as he spends everything he has and he has no righteousness to his account, he comes home and he is clothed with a new robe and a, new, and a ring is put on his finger and the father is saying, all that is mine is yours. I'm still extending my righteousness to you. His grace overflows to us in his ability to save anyone. Look at Mark chapter 10, verse 25 and 27. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Salvation is impossible, but with God. He can save anyone. Any one of us, anyone in our life, it is not impossible with Jesus. His grace overflows as he doesn't just have the ability to save, he actually extends an invitation for every person to come to him. In Matthew 22, it's the story of a, someone who's throwing a great banquet and he invites people and they don't come. And so then he extends the invitation to everyone in the streets and everyone in the highways. It says, as many as you find, invite them into the feast. 
We are all, every person is invited to know Christ. And we, as his ambassadors, extend that grace and that invitation to the world saying, come to him. Stop waiting. Come in. Join the feast. That invitation is for every person. Think of the thief hanging on the cross. It was not too late. He received the invitation and he came to Jesus. We see the grace of Jesus overflowing as he cleanses his house of corruption. Uh, this is the story where, you know, he multiple times went into the temple and drove out the money changers and drove out those who were selling um, different types of uh, animals to be offered. And the reason he did that is because do you know who suffers the most when worship becomes this hustle bustle? The blind and the lame and those who are spiritually hungry. The Gentiles couldn't even, it was where they were supposed to worship and it was just a marketplace. And Jesus has always cleansed, if you read church history, he always cleanses his house so that we who are on the outside can have a place to come and hear of the grace and mercy and love of God. We see his grace overflowing as he gives spiritual strength that we need to follow him. He says in Matthew 11, my yoke is easy. Now, let me say this. When we get to the truth section, he says some things that are astounding. He says things like, be perfect. And it really will feel impossible. But what he says in Matthew 11 is, if you come to me, you, you'll be yoked to me and my strength, and I will carry you. I will give you the strength that you need to be holy and to obey me. And in John 15, that's the story of the, the vine and the branches. We don't bear spiritual fruit. No one bears true spiritual fruit by effort, but by abiding in Christ. And that life naturally flows into, into spiritual fruit. The spirit of God in us will work will work a sanctifying power in us. And he changes our hearts. We had hearts of stone that become hearts of flesh that love, hear me, love to obey God, love his commandments, love to run to him, love to repent of our sin and get away from darkness. That is strength that comes from God. He doesn't leave us on our own and say, now you clean up your act and follow me. He says, come to me. I'll give you strength. I'll give you rest. Yoke yourself to me. Come abide in me and you will bear fruit. He even changes our will so that we desire from within obedience that comes from faith to bear spiritual fruit. His grace overflows as he promises that he will come back for his people. Did you hear that? He's coming back for us. John 16, 22 so also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. Right now we have sorrow. We're living in a broken world where we have our own sin that we are struggling with and the whole world is broken. We have an enemy. We face death and destruction. We have sorrow. But he says, but I'll see you again. And your hearts will rejoice. I'm gonna make all things new. His grace overflows as he gives his church his Holy Spirit. 
He doesn't leave us as orphans. He sends his very own spirit to us. John 16, verse seven, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. We, the church right now, are the temple of God, the Holy Spirit. It's incredible. We see his grace overflowing as he died on the cross. And now this is important because the cross is not just, it was a, the most brutal physical form of torture and public shame and humiliation. But, but what is happening as Jesus is on the cross that is even more significant, he drinks the cup of the wrath of God on the cross. He's not just physically suffering. He was spiritually and eternally suffering. Jesus was offering his life his own soul as a perfect atoning sacrifice for our sin. He was experiencing the justice of God for our sin. That is what makes his death on the cross grace. He's saying, I will drink the cup of the wrath of God so that if someone would believe in me, they will never taste a drop of the wrath of God. That is incredible grace. We see his grace overflowing as his sacrificial death ended the old system of sacrifice. Remember that veil was torn and no longer do we have to bring animals and slaughter them and have priests to intercede for us. And in fact, we know that right now he is praying for us. He is our high priest. That old system is done away with. Now we have the, the closest access to God than anyone has ever had by his spirit. And the old system is over. And we are welcomed into his presence. We see his grace overflowing as he rises from the dead. Do you know what that means? It means death is defeated. It means death will never have the final word. And he's the first fruits of his church. As he rose from the dead, we all will rise again from the dead. We don't have to mourn as the world mourns when our loved ones die. We know that death is defeated. We have that grace to know we will rise again. We see his grace overflowing to Peter. Um, remember when Peter denied him three times? And yet Jesus came to him and three times asked him, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And, and Peter is able three times to affirm, yes, Jesus, I love you. I love you. You know that I love you. And not only was he restored relationally to Jesus, he was then sent into ministry. He says, so Peter, then feed my sheep. Jesus comes to people like us who have sinned against him, who, is, who have been ashamed to be associated with him, and he extends grace to us. And then he even uses us, which is the next one is his grace overflows as he commissions his disciples to go to the nations. Think about this. We wouldn't be here today if Jesus didn't graciously commission his disciples to go share the news of his love for the world. Jesus' grace is overflowing. Honestly, I wish I started to the beginning of last week. I wish we could go from Genesis to Revelation and see his grace on every page. Every act of the love of God is all fulfilled in Jesus who is overflowing with grace.
Now, I hope your stomach's about halfway full, okay? Because he is also full of truth. He is full of truth. You know, today, it's, uh, it's popular to, to, to think, you know, God is love is, is the last thing we need to say about God. And, and God is love. He is full of steadfast love and mercy. Um, but God is also full of truth. God is also holy. Jesus is a lamb, and he is also a lion. He is love, and he is righteous. He is full of grace, and yet he is also full of truth. And in fact, we wouldn't even know of his grace if it were not for truth. Uh, quick way to set this up. We live in a so-called post-Christ, post-Christian culture um, where, where we call evil good and we call good evil. Uh, and I just want to say, this is nothing new. Uh, have you read Genesis 3 in the garden? We live in a post-Eden culture. From the beginning, Satan has always been twisting the truth about God. Remember Jesus' conversation with Pilate? He was on trial. He was about to go to the cross. And look what Jesus and Pilate say to one another in John 18. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king? Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? You know, that question was not genuine. He doesn't wait for an answer. He just is throwing that out there. What is truth? You know, Pilate's attitude towards truth is the same attitude the fallen human heart has always had towards truth. What is truth? Your truth, my truth, what is truth? If we want to know truth, we look to Jesus, who is full of truth. And we're gonna look now at, we're going to round that table and come back the other side, and we are just going to be washed in the truth of Jesus. We're going to hear his teachings, one after the other. And I'll just tell you right now, it's, it's going to feel overwhelming. It, it may feel crushing. You know, Jesus and his truth is sharp. He didn't fear people. He didn't fear offending people. His disciples were like, don't you know you're offending people? Uh, he knew what he was doing. In fact, it was his proclamation of truth that got him killed in the end. We forget we follow a man who was murdered because of his truth. So let's see together uh, the way Jesus is full of truth. The first thing to say is that Jesus himself is truth. He is truth. John fourteen six. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is no truth outside of Jesus. There's not like his universe and his truth. And then, you know, the rest of the universe has their own truth. Jesus made the universe. He made humanity. He is holding all things together by his truth. He is truth. We see truth so in his teaching. Remember the Sermon on the Mount? It was, if Jesus really delivered it this way, it is the single greatest like compilation of truth after truth after truth. It's three chapters of shattering truth. 
I'm just going to read us three passages from the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, verse 18 and 19. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. He says in Matthew 7, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. And then finally, one more. You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And he didn't go on to explain what he meant. He just kept on teaching truth. People were being crushed. What are you saying, Jesus? Jesus teaches, his teaching was personally validated by God. In case you're like, well, who is Jesus really? In Matthew 17, it was the transfiguration where he was, his glory was shining and Moses and Elijah are there. And this is, this is so good. Peter is like, just doesn't know what to do. And he's just speaking. And he gets interrupted by God the Father. Okay, look what happens. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when behold, A bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Do you know what God says about Jesus? Listen to him. Listen to him. He he cuts off humans in our confusion and even our good intentions. He says, no, we, we don't concern yourself with the opinions of men, even good men. Listen to Jesus. Listen to my son. Jesus said his truth divides. And, and I want to read this to you. This is out of Matthew chapter 10. I don't think we have a slide for it. This is a confusing, difficult thing to hear. Matthew 10, verse 34 and 39, Jesus says this. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. He says, my truth is like a sword that cuts through every relationship, everything you love. And it's a line in the sand. And he says, you want to follow me? You got to cross that line. This truth will divide people. You know, we talk about unity. We need unity Listen, the truth divides true from false. And unity is found around truth. Unity is found around Jesus. And people may walk away from Jesus. And and that is where disunity begins. Jesus says, my truth is like a sword. Jesus' words, though divide, are also life and bring freedom. Hear that. Jesus' truth brings freedom. John chapter 8, verse 31 and 32. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, 
You are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You know, uh, the lie of the serpent is that the truth of God is binding and bondage, and life and freedom is found away from Jesus and away from his ways. And Jesus says, no way. The truth sets you free to live life as I have ordained it to be. In fact, we see Jesus doubling down on God's Old Testament moral commandments. We read this earlier. Don't think I came to abolish all of that stuff. And in fact, he doubles down on the Bible's teaching on gender. He says, from the beginning, have you not read God created male and female? He doubles down on sexuality and marriage. He says, a man shall leave his parents and, and hold fast to his wife. He doubles down on adultery. He says, you heard don't commit adultery. I say adultery begins in your own heart. Don't even lust. He doubles down on anger. He says, you heard don't murder one another, but I say don't even be angry with a brother. He doubles down on divorce. He doubles down on forgiveness. Jesus does not let up on the moral commandments of God. Jesus says, in fact, the whole Old Testament is all about him. It all points to him. Every moral commandment is there because it's showing what God is like. He says in Luke 24, all the law and the prophets, they're fulfilled in him. In John chapter five, he says, people look to scripture as if it has life in itself, but scripture points to him. He says, you can read the Bible and know truth about God, but miss Jesus who is life itself. He says this whole book is all about him, is fulfilled in him. Jesus said the way into his kingdom is through childlike dependence on God. We need to remember this. We don't earn our way in. We don't work our way in. We don't do anything in. We are dependent upon his mercy like a child. Like a child who's just putting his arms up, saying, I can't do it. You have to let me in. He says, that is the posture into his kingdom. That's why it is so difficult to enter the kingdom of God. If we are proud of ourselves, we are walking away from the kingdom. He says, humble yourself. Come in like a dependent child. Jesus said, if someone is ashamed of him, he would be eternally ashamed of them, Matthew 10, 32 and 33. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will deny before my Father who is in heaven. That may be confusing because what about Peter, right? Well, what about, what about Judas? And what he's saying here is some may be forgiven of their embarrassment of Christ, but if we live our life denying him. As Judas ended his life, as he lived a life denying Christ, he says he's, he, he will be denied heaven. But we know, thankfully, full of grace that we can let Jesus down and be embarrassed. If we return to him and receive his grace, it will, it will produce the fruit. We will not ultimately live our life ashamed of Jesus. No one enters the kingdom of heaven ashamed of Jesus. Jesus knew that people would reject his truth. Look at Matthew chapter 11, verse 16. But what shall I compare this generation? 
It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came, neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And what Jesus is saying here is when John the Baptist came and preached, people just ignored him. He was preaching repentance. They didn't mourn. And when Jesus came preaching grace and life, people didn't dance and celebrate. He says that this generation is like children making music and and people just ignore them. He knew he would be rejected. Yet he said that those who have a true relationship with him would not reject him. They would trust in his words and his truth. In John chapter 10, this is where he says, I'm the good shepherd. And he says, you'll know my sheep because they will know my voice. When I call, they will follow. When I beckon them to do this or do that, they will listen to him. And he says, but but to another shepherd, they won't listen. A, A true sheep of Jesus will recognize that's not what Jesus says. That is what Jesus says. And this is encouraging. We don't need to know like the whole Bible memorized. If you're a sheep of Jesus, you will just recognize that doesn't sound like my shepherd. That teaching that I'm hearing on a podcast doesn't quite sound like my shepherd says, we'll, we'll be able just to know what Jesus' voice sounds like. We'll have the spirit of God in us saying yes when, G, when we hear the words of Jesus and teaching that is faithful to his word. And we will also know, no, that's not, that's not what Jesus said. That kind of thinking, that kind of idea, it's not what Jesus said. Jesus said similarly that many people will look and act like Christians but are not truly saved. We see this in Matthew chapter seven when we read about the narrow gate and it says, many will say, Lord, did we not do this in your name? Did we not do that in your name? And he's gonna say, I never knew you. In Matthew 13, it's a parable of uh, the, the wheat growing up, which is his people. And then there's tares that grow up that looks just like wheat, but it doesn't bear fruit. And he says, that's the way his kingdom will always be. There has always been people who say, yeah, yeah, Lord, Lord, I follow Jesus. But in the end, it will be, it will, uh, be proven true that they did not really know him. They didn't really obey him is what he says in Matthew 7. You want to know who is mine? They hear my words and they put them into practice. Jesus said to find him in his kingdom is worth more than everything we own. We get these two parables of a man who finds a treasure in a field. He sells everything he has to get that treasure. A man who finds a pearl worth more than everything. He says, if you really find me, you will give up everything to get me because I am so much more valuable than anything this world has to offer. Jesus said that sin isn't mainly something we do but something that begins in our own heart. We, we're not just called to clean up our act. We need new hearts. Look what he says in Mark chapter seven. And he said, for what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. Jesus said the world will recognize a true follower of him by their love for other Christians. And I don't think, oh yeah, we do have that, no. 
This is interesting because often what we say is it's their, their love in general. But no, Jesus says, if you love one another, that is proof to the world there is something supernatural going on here because the church is full of people who would otherwise have nothing in common. Jew and Gentile, different races, ethnicities, generations, musical tastes. And it is proof that Jesus must be real when all of these kinds of different people can come together around Jesus and actually love one another. That is the way the world will recognize there's something going on there that cannot be explained any other way. We, uh, two more, these are doozies. I saved them to the end. Jesus said, the world will hate Christians. He said, the world will hate Christians. John chapter 15, verse 18 and 19. If the world hates you, no, it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. You know, we have this idea that, that friendship with the world and popularity with our culture is what God really needs from us. As if the gospel will be helped if the world loves us. And I'll just say that idea did not come from the New Testament and it did not come from the mouth of Jesus. He says, the world will hate you if you follow me. Now, for sure, we are to love lost people and pray for their salvation, be hospitable and kind and pursue justice and mercy in the world. We are to move towards the world in love. But Jesus said, the world will actually hate you as you do it. The world will hate the darkness. Darkness hates the light. When light shines into the darkness, the darkness is like, oh, cool, let's be friends. What do you have to say? No, it hates the light unless it becomes light. And so we need a, a proper view towards culture. We are to love it and bless it, but something's wrong if we're friends with the world. And then the last, uh, last difficult thing is, is Jesus taught more about eternal punishment in hell than any other teacher in the Bible by far. Uh, we, could we could read 18 different passages. Um, we'll read one, Mark chapter nine, verse 43 and 48. For if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Hell is a devastating truth. It's devastating. It's eternally conscious punishment for our sin. And it's just and it's right. And it's what every person who has sinned against a holy God deserves. This is simply true. But these truths drive us 
to see our desperate need for a savior. And Jesus, though is a lion, is also a lamb. And the same God who says, yes, hell is a thing, said, I will face hell myself on the cross. I will lay down my own life for the world. I will leave heaven, live a perfect life, lay my life down as a sacrifice. That if anyone would come to me, they would not face hell. I'll face it for them and they will have eternal life. I want to close with uh, just this last image. In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah sees God. It says he's seated on his, he sees God seated on his throne and there's angels who are covering their eyes. They won't even look at God. He's so holy. And they're just saying to one another, holy, holy, holy. And, and the response Isaiah had when he saw the true reality of who God is, is he fell down. And he cried out because of his own sin. He says, woe is me. And then what happened was this holy God sent forth this coal that came from the altar, which is where sacrifices were made. And that coal touched Isaiah. And he says, you have been cleansed and your sin is forgiven. Jesus is holy. And yet he condescends to us. And on the cross, he suffers for our sin that we can be made whole, that we can be forgiven and receive grace and mercy. And so the proper posture when we behold the lion and the lamb is to bow down and worship him, to confess our sin, and then to receive the mercy that is always available to us through the blood of Jesus. So Jesus, we thank you that you are the lion and the lamb. And we thank you for the cross where your grace meets your truth, where your love meets your justice. Jesus, we are worshiping. We are coming before a real God this morning. A real God who is really holy and who is also full of grace and mercy to the very people who rejected you. We thank you for your mercy this morning. Lord, I ask that your spirit would take your word as you do and apply it just where we need it, Lord. If, if some of us are proud, would you humble us? If some of us are lost, would you save us? If some of us are exhausted, would you sustain us? Jesus, there is no one like you you are full of grace and full of truth. And though you are so holy and true and mighty, we can draw near to the throne of grace and find mercy. We can draw near to you, Lord. And I thank you that that you have come already for us, that you pursue us. This morning you've pursued us through your word. Your word went out pursuing us. Lord, I ask that we who heard you speak this morning would respond and come to you, that we would come to you, Christ, and we would bow at your feet, confess our sins, receive your mercy. We would rejoice and worship the lion and the lamb.